two things. One, we all learn visually, but very few of us are comfortable communicating visually. And number two, the ability to sort of process while you're trying to visualize something shows a, a comfort level. So that's how that process goes. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Carl Richards. Carl started as a simple financial planner in Nevada and ended up working for the New York Times for a decade and publishing multiple books. In this episode, we'll go through the surprisingly simple steps to become a content creator. You don't need a big set of tools, just set up a couple of smart things and you can rock and roll. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Hey, Carl, great that you can join us here. For people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, super excited to talk with you today. So I ran a financial planning or a wealth management firm for years. And as part of that, I was always drawing things on the whiteboard to try and explain things to clients. So I would be talking to clients and they just be getting blank stares. So out of kind of an act of desperation, one day I jumped up and drew some things on a whiteboard and suddenly everybody understood, despite I have no art background, which is probably obvious to anybody who's seen my work. So I was doing that while running a business and then I started doing it publicly, putting them up on a little blog that I started. This was all 14 or 15 years ago. And then one thing led to another and one day, and I saved this email because nobody really believes me, but one day I got an email from the New York Times, the money section saying, hey, I love these. Would you do a little experiment with us. And so that led to writing a column, which was later named The Sketch Guy. So I wrote this column for the New York Times with, it was, you know, as few words as possible. We have a saying around here that I work really hard to send people less. So it was as few words as possible and an image. And that ended up running every week for 10 years. And that led to some books, and then the, we built a bunch of businesses around all the content we were creating. And so that's a little bit about how I got here. Wow, that's interesting. And so you start with your own business. You you know started drawing because it was easier for people to understand. How did that work? Because I can imagine you know financial planning. That's a lot of numbers. How did you go from numbers to drawings? Yeah. So I figured out since I didn't know this at the time. But I have figured out since that I don't really care that much about money or financial planning. What I care about is the impact it has on humans. And unfortunately, in most parts of the world now, money is sort of the air we breathe, right? Like it impacts our dreams, our fears. I mean, the first thing you think of, at least in the United States, the first thing you think of when you get sick is, can I afford it? You know, like it's just lose your job, your kids. So I understood that early on, that it wasn't about money. It was about sort of the impact. And then the drawing piece really was money is not the thing. It's taking something that people feel is complex. So I, I've since done a bunch of other things, you know, around creativity and doing public work and entrepreneurship. And now I'm diving deep into sort of understanding more about blockchain and cryptocurrency. All of those things are complex, at least at first. And what the drawings were about was like, can I reduce it down to its simplest form? So it was about like, and that requires, I mean, you know, this with the work you've done, just anybody who's spent time on Twitter in a productive way understands how hard it is to write 
200 words is really hard compared to 2,000 words. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for the long letter. I didn't have time for a shorter one. And the same thing with an image. If you can reduce it in the end to here's the part that matters. You know, it requires you to leave out some nuance and some edge cases and you'll never get it all because you can't. But you're essentially saying, here's my opinion of what matters. And here it is in a drawing. And I've tried multiple times over the years to, you know, get better at using InDesign or Adobe Illustrator. And every time I do it, I figure out that I'm losing some, like, I love the blunt instrument, right? So it was originally like a Sharpie, you know, a marker. What do you call them in South Africa? They call them cookie pens, you know, a marker and cardstock, because with that blunt instrument, you don't have room to get a lot on the paper. Like you've got to be broad strokes. And so I even love that. Like I love the constraint of that. That's one reason why I love Twitter is the constraint forces you to produce good work. So that's how the drawing started becoming a thing was just like, how much can I capture in this one image using these blunt instruments? What were some of your first drawings? Because that probably took a little bit of time. They were pretty shit at first, probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And still often are. I mean, it feels like the key to getting to something even halfway decent is to release a lot of work that's not very good. I can't figure out a way around that. How did that process go? Because I guess you had people in your office, you were trying to explain something, you know, how they could get a better financial future. And then, you know, I guess you saw in them that, you know, the bell wasn't ringing inside yet. And what was the moment you decided, okay, I'm going to do something different. And what types of drawings did you start with? How did that process go? Yeah, like very early. I mean, in fact, I can't remember the drawing, but I can remember the meeting when I first did this in front of someone. Now, I wasn't a doodler in high school, you know, like I never drew as a kid. This was new. But it was a, there were clients named Dave and Diane, and they were both super smart, successful people. He was an emergency room doctor, and she was a pretty technical technology sales rep. And I was explaining some concept, and I can't remember what the concept was, but it was actually important for them to understand. And they were just, it was sort of blank stares. And I knew because they were really smart and successful, I knew that it wasn't their fault. It was mine. So that's when I was like, it was really like an act of desperation. And as I recall, it was something about how when you retire, the money will, you know, now the money is going this way. And when you retire, the money will go this way without getting too technical because that'd take us 20 minutes to talk about. But it was just like a box, an arrow, and a circle. And like I reversed the arrows. Like now the money's going this way. And then the money, it was super simple. And I think that that's what's never stopped. Like I literally haven't gotten over the surprise of it. And I and now like we just cataloged all my work. We spent the last year, I hired somebody to, to not not this last year, a couple years ago, somebody came on to work for me who's now my COO and she cataloged all of the work. And I don't know, there's thousands and thousands of data points in this Airtable database. And I think there's there's over a thousand sketches. And one of the things I haven't gotten over after a thousand of them and 500 of them ran in a paper that a few people would read. One of the things I haven't gotten over is how much people seem to appreciate the amateur nature, like back of a napkin, the pragmatic just... I, in fact, I had multiple times where I've done some consulting since that it doesn't have to do with money. You know, like people would hire me to come help them explain a really complex thing like airplane engines or whatever. 
And I would draw it out on like, oh, like, and I was just drafting, like rough draft. Like, what if we did this? Or what about this? Or is this what I'm, am I understanding? And the paper would be a mess. And they would want that. They would reach across the table and say, I'm gonna, can I take that? I'm like, oh no, I'll redraw it for you. No, 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 I don't want the redrawn one. I want that. I think there's an element, two things. One, we all learn visually, but very few of us are comfortable communicating visually. And number two, the ability to sort of process while you're trying to visualize something shows a, a comfort level. And to me, it was just ignorance. I, it's not comfort. It's not confidence. It was just like I was like beginner's mind. Like, oh, you mean kind of like this? So that's how that process goes. I've thought a lot about how do you create, and I'm happy to talk about it if you want to, but that's how the process went early for me was just like, let me see if I can process this visually while we're talking. Now, I'm interested in hearing how it went because I compare this a little bit to, I don't know if you know Jack Butcher from Visualized Value. Yeah, he's also really into constraints. He uses just, you know, white on black in his drawings on Twitter and in his a lot of visuals he uses. And, you know, he's really strong on creating constraints. And by creating constraints for yourself, it's actually easier to create new things. Yeah, and I think the best thing you could do to learn how to create visuals is go take Jack's course. Right. Like I don't have anything really to add to what Jack has. But one of the things that I love doing was so there's two principles that I've pulled out of this. One is that take the flaw and make it a feature. Like I love anytime I can do that, I'm a big fan. So we look at doing that in all the businesses. So like originally these were cardstock and Sharpie. I'd stick them in the Fujitsu Snap Scan. Like there was no flatbed scanner. You know what I mean? Like it was just like super basic rudimentary objects using to create it tools. We'd scan them off, right? Send them into the times. They would run them. And every once in a while, I would be like, oh, I should do a better job. And I had this happen when I first met Jack a year and a half ago or whatever. Jack and I did a little bit of work together a year and a half, two years ago. And when I first met, I was like, I want more of my images to be like that. In fact, I asked Jack. I'm like, Jack, why don't you take some of my images and interpret them? And We've done one or two of those where he took a principle of mine and interpreted it. But the image, Jack said the same thing. Jack was like, are people asking for your images to be anything other than hand-drawn? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, then why are you... I'm like, because... So, but that was just the latest in 15 years worth of feeling like an imposter and thinking I should be doing... You know, I can't tell you how many times I've downloaded Adobe whatever, Adobe Illustrator and tried to figure it out. And I would do it occasionally and I'd send them out and people were like, no, 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 we want the hand drawn. So that was an example of what I thought was the flaw has now become the defining feature. I've got a podcast that way. I didn't want to have guests and I didn't want it to be long. And I was like, oh, then I can't have a podcast. And I thought, well, wait, what if I just made a short one and it was just me? So now people love it and it's paid. It's $10 a month. And people love it because it's paid, because it's just me, and because it's short, all the flaws. So those are that and the total embrace of constraints. And then the last thing I'll say about like how to do this, like I don't think it's very useful to talk about, well, yeah, which pens do you use, whatever. Like you can figure that all that stuff out. But what is interesting is the sooner you can fire yourself as the judge of the quality of your own work, the better. Like I fired myself and I, the reason I fired myself is because I had it happen so many times where I would come in on Thursday mornings. That was the deadline. And I'd be like, Oh, I got nothing. Like, I don't know what. And I would like go through a whole ream of cardstock just over my shoulder, just 
crap, 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 crap. And then I finally had come away like, ah, it's the deadline. I, okay, fine. I'll send this in. And I was literally expecting to have the New York Times say, this has been great, Carl, but we're all done. And it would end up being like the best one. And then I would come in and feel like I had created a masterpiece. Like, oh, this is my best work ever. And I would send it in and it'd be crickets. Nobody would like it. So I finally was like, wait, apparently I'm not a very good judge of this. So that's the third thing I would say is like, just fire yourself. Your job is not to judge the quality of the work you do. Your job is to do it in public. And that's the end of your job, right? So that's been super helpful for me. Yeah. And I think that it's a really powerful thing. And it also works very well on Twitter as well. You know, a lot of people struggle to click on that tweet button, but they should just tweet more and see how, you know, their work is perceived by people and then do more of the things that people like instead of holding yourself back and thinking, oh man, if I tweet this, something bad is going to happen. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, there's so many things to say about that. Like, you know, if you're worried about that, the good news is when you're first starting out, no one's going to see it anyway. I always find that to be really, really comforting. Like when your work is the worst and you're the scaredest, no one's going to see it. And then then the story I tell myself later is like, okay, now there's whatever, 40,000 people that, and then I think, well, the stream moves so fast that if it's garbage, it'll just be forgotten. If it's good, there's a chance. And I call that tailwind. So we just love, as a business, we love just placing small bets, lots of small bets, because we've realized we're not very good at knowing what's going to hit. What we're good at is noticing tailwind when it shows up and then saying, hey, I should do a little more of that. I should do a little more of that. I also want to dig a little bit deeper into what you mentioned before about spotting flaws and creating you know features out of those flaws can you run us through a couple of those things that you went through more like business-wise instead of just drawings but yeah so the podcast is my favorite example just because i was like i want to start a podcast i want to start a podcast and but i was like oh i really don't want to deal with scheduling guests every podcast has guests of course and who would i even talk to you know like everybody's already talked to everybody and i also work really hard. Everything about the work I do is about reducing. So I was like, I want it to be short, but podcasts are long, you know? And and I was like, ah, you know what? What if I just did it for myself? And so this really happened because Seth Godin actually asked me one time, we were at breakfast and he's like, why aren't you writing a daily blog? This was years ago. And I'm like, well, I don't really like to touch the keyboard and I don't like to write. So back then, what I did was I would just record an audio file and put it up on SoundCloud. Actually, to start, I just recorded audio files on my iPhone and I saved them in Dropbox. I didn't even tell anyone. I was like, Seth convinced me that the, and he's convinced the world that the benefit was metacognition, right? It was just processing and thinking about your thinking. Who cares if no one sees it? So I started saving these. And then somebody on my team found them and was like, hey, could I turn these into a podcast? And I was like, no, 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 not doing a podcast. That's a guess. And Like, okay, fine. Would you mind if I just put them up on SoundCloud and we'll embed the player in your your blog posts as blog posts? They'll just be a player. I'll type up a little intro and then like, okay, great. Then the time, somebody at the time saw them and said, hey, would you mind if we include these sometimes with the sketches? I was like, okay, sure. And then people started sending emails saying, hey, I love your podcast. And I would reply and say, it's not a podcast. And they would say, hey, Carl, I don't really care what you call it but could you put this thing on iTunes so I could listen to it in the car? And I was like, oh, okay. So then we started doing that. And then I was like, well, 
all right, what if I just do this? So now every day, I release an episode every day but Sunday, and it's two to 12 minutes, and it's just me. It's kind of like not anywhere near as good or whatever, you know, Seth's daily blog post. It's just my daily, me noticing something in the world. But that was a flaw at first. It was a flaw that now people are like, I love your podcast because it's only you. Or I love your podcast because it's short. And I also have people say, I love your podcast because I have to pay $10 a month for it. And it means that I value it. I'm like, those are, I thought those were all flaws. And then one more on the business side, we spent a bunch of time, maybe two years ago, I'd built a bunch of, um, we just think of ourselves, I think of this as an intellectual property business. So we just create knowledge products. And we aren't so concerned. We have this document called the code. And the code is like our first principles. And one thing in the code is that we're artifact, artifact agnostic. And what that meant was we used to be, it used to be like book, 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 right? I was going to write books. And then I realized like, who cares? It could be a podcast. It could be an audio book. It could be an online course. could be short. It could be long. Let's just worry about the idea. And then once we develop the idea, we'll find the right artifact for it. Like we'll find the right product for it, the right way for it to land in the world. So we spent a lot of time exploring artifacts, like how to create, like, should we use this? Should we build a WordPress site with a special membership? So we spent a crazy amount of money building a custom WordPress site for a membership thing or an online course thing. And then we were like, wait, we did a lot of business using Kajabe. Why did we switch? And so it's, again, embracing constraints and flaws. Now we've got a list of, like, if we can't do the thing using this tool, we don't do the thing. And that constraint and what some people would perceive as a flaw, because I've had people tell me, no, you should do this and you should do that. You should do we have gotten, I don't know what the number, I want to say 10 times, but it's probably not. But we've gotten so much more productive because we no longer think about all those extra things. So this flaw of not creating a bunch of extra stuff has become a feature because the business has become so valuable, so, so much more productive. So that's another example. And one last one I'll just show you on Twitter. Like I don't use Twitter right. I've been told that I don't use Twitter right. And I gave myself permission to decide that it was a tool. I'll use it how I want to. And for years, I didn't use Twitter right. And I'd get my feelings hurt, right? Like people would tell me I didn't use Twitter right. Like you don't interact and you don't do this. You know, you don't follow anyone. Like I follow one person. It's another project of my own. I don't follow anyone. Well, we decided as a team that Twitter was a place for us to share ideas. That was the role it served for us. If that's not the role it serves for you, that's completely fine. But it's the role. So this is a flaw. Some people view it as a flaw. We view it as a feature. And then I was like, well, wait, Seth's allowed to do that. You know, he only uses Twitter as basically a repost of his blog posts, right? And then we took it one step further. And we recently have decided, Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld argue, seen arguments between the two of them that Jerry says, people want your greatest hits. And Chris Rock says, no, they want new material. And so we've decided that Twitter is a place for our greatest hits. The podcast actually is a place for me to develop new material. It's 10 bucks a month. So there's like a barrier to it. The people who come there want to be in on the go. They want to be in on the joke. They want to be behind the scenes. They paid 10 bucks to be there. So that's new material. Twitter for us is greatest hits. So now we've just built a giant library. I mean, we're close to 500 of the best tweets I've ever sent. And we've cataloged them all because I feel like that's in service of my audience, 
right? Like we've cleaned them up, we've edited them, we've tightened them, we've gotten them better and better and better. And I'm like, that's in service of the audience. If that ever wears you out, like I've heard this one before, it probably means that it's okay to move on. You know, like, so that's another flaw in the way we do things. We've just been very, very, we're trying to get increasingly intentional about the tools that we use and what the purpose they serve. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. And so you've been on Twitter for about 13 years. How did you start using Twitter? Because I guess you, you were still working at the, for, for the New York Times or how did I go? So I hadn't started writing. I never really worked for the New York Times. I, I wrote that column. I was always sort of never an employee. It's just a, we basically call a contract writer. But I wasn't even writing the column yet. So that started about 12 years ago. So I started writing on Twitter before. And I don't even remember how I signed up. I don't remember any of that, actually. I just know that the early days were, and I still think you can capture some of this magic on Twitter if you're intentional about it. But the early days were really magic. You know, like I could reach out to people I'd never be able to talk to. I still think you can do this if you're if you're intentional about it. But yeah, that was really fun. But I can't remember how I started. But I was much, I mean, I went through periods of time where I was like much more, it was engagement, it was community, it was friends, it was all of that stuff. And it's sort of morphed over the years for me in terms of a tool. And probably people started following you because of your work in the newspaper or not? How did that go? Yeah, I think between the work I did there, we used to have in my byline, it would say you can follow Carl's work at, you know, at Behavior App on Twitter. So with that, when the books came out, so two books published by Penguin Portfolio, when those came out, and then a lot of the speaking engagements, and then a lot of like, I have a lot of financial advisors, They're basically entrepreneurs who've chosen financial advice as their business. And that there's a huge group of them that follow me as well. And, and, and tell me how we like your Twitter strategy changed over the years, because I guess in the beginning it was more like, you know, conversing with friends, also maybe just you know, sending, sending, sending. Now it's, you know, you've really curated your timeline for your audience. Yeah. So, and one thing that I'm really clear about is I'm sure I'm doing it wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, and I, I have no problem with that. And I also know that I always find it really cute when people talk about the past and they make up this beautiful story about the plan they had. <laughs> and, and we all know, like, you had no clue, brother. Like, it's just a thing that happened. So, I had no clue, but I knew that like, I remember being really excited during one time. I was like, this is so cool because I can, it's like showing up to the water cooler with 20 of my favorite friends anytime I want. And I used to do a lot of that, like, hey, here for the next half hour, what, what's going on? Like talking and answering questions. And then it slowly, then I remember like one of the impactful, Seth Godin's had a huge impact on my career and hearing Seth talk about why he didn't use Twitter. I think he was speaking at that conference in France. Was that Le Web? Yeah, rings a bell. Yeah, and they asked him why he wasn't on Twitter. And he's like, well, because I can't be the best at it. Like the people who do it really well are interacting. And I remember thinking that like, is this what I want to be the best at? This interaction and, and if I am the best at it, what will the result be? And the result will be me spending a lot of time on Twitter, right? Yeah. So it was like, what if it was just for us? What if it was just a really elegant vehicle to share ideas? And if the ideas are worth sharing and you find them worth you know, engaging in, then you'll find value and I'll find value. And if you don't find them worth it, then it's really, really easy. You just don't follow anymore, right? Like, and so I, that's kind of how things progress for me to the point now where we're really clear, like what we want to do is share 
really, this isn't always true. Like I still sometimes jump on there in the middle of the night and just fire away. But what I want to do is share really carefully thought out. It's bled into all my other work. Like the books we're writing right now, like I can't even figure out how to write. Like if I write a 20, let's just say I write a 10 page chapter. I now can't stop myself from saying, what can I get rid of to make this three paragraphs? Right? Like, especially when it's ideas, I finally have understood the difference between stories and ideas. And maybe someday I'll write another story book, a business book with a story in it. But right now I'm just trying to communicate ideas. And so to me, I want to do like, I personally would rather spend $50 on a 20 page book than $5 on a 200 page book. If the 20 pages had the idea. So now with Twitter, I'm always just like, how can we do less? And that's not less volume of tweeting because of the timeline and people say, but it's just like, can every tweet be meaningful? Like that's kind of where we are in our, in our, in the phase now. Yeah. And that's been going on for a couple of years. I think, you know, we're, we're moving into like a more curation phase. I think people value their time a lot more and you see that, you know, info products, which are pretty short to the point, but full of value can sell for hundreds of dollars compared to, you know, a book, which is, you know, hundreds of pages long, which is, it's not conveying as much value and, you know, shouldn't be as expensive as, as the info product. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really cool world we're in now, for sure. You were hired, I guess, contracted by New York Times to do the drawing for 10 years. I'm still curious to know how they came in, into contact with you because you were a financial planner. Were you already well-known? Did you already write no, books? Probably no. not. Huh? No. Yeah, nobody believes this. And I... I actually have the email because nobody believes me. So I like I've saved it. I always share it in speak engagements when I talk about this. Because one of my favorite things to talk about is sort of just the idea of doing public work and playing in traffic. And it's largely what the podcast is about. Because I don't have anything else valuable to share. I like I honestly don't have much else valuable to share other than, well, keep trying. <laughs> right? Like keep playing in traffic. And somebody came up with the concept of increasing your luck surface area. And I love that idea. I just have always talked about it like as playing in traffic, playing traffic as much as I could. So what happened was clients kept asking me, you know, like a client would come in, I would draw something, we'd be at lunch, I'd draw it on the napkin, whatever. They would take it. They'd say like, can I take that and show my spouse when I get home? Yeah. I remember then the next progression was a client came into the office. I did on the whiteboard. They left. They called the next day and said, hey, Carl, that thing you drew on the whiteboard, could you draw it again on a piece of paper, scan it and email it to me? Maybe we even had to fax it. I can't remember what it was. But and when I saw it go out digitally, I was like, oh, that's really it. When I saw it as a PDF emailed out, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I could share this with more people. So I started the blog and the blog really like it was just me. I mean, I always joke that my mom and my sister were the only ones that read it. But I found out later that my sister was lying. It was just my mom. But I kept sharing it. I kept sharing it kind of I kind of couldn't stop. It was like I was compelled. And I, my favorite kind of entrepreneur is actually somebody who's, who's compelled to entrepreneur. It's like not really a choice. So I kept doing it. And then it caught hold a little bit with other financial people, some sort of hedge fund manager, private equity, financial planners, like those kind of people started sharing, venture capitalists started sharing in them a little bit, just a little bit, not much. And one of them, and I actually went and traced this down, and I'm, I can see his face right now, but I can't remember his name right this second. And I try to remember his name because he changed my life. He sent it, 
And he didn't know Ron Lieber from Adam, right? Like they didn't know each other. He sent it to Ron Lieber, who was the editor at the New York Times, your money section. Now, I now Ron is now a really good friend. I know what Ron's inbox looks like. So again, I couldn't pretend to know why on that day of the hundreds of emails he got from people like us pitching him ideas. I didn't pitch him, but somebody else, I can't remember his name right now. I want to say it's James, but this other person sent him and said, Ron, I think you'd really like this. You should check it out. And for whatever reason on that day, because most of the time, I mean, I know Ron well enough. Most of the time, those just get deleted. They don't even get opened. So for whatever, I mean, look, Ron tries to open everything. I'm sure I shouldn't speak for him, but I know trying to manage the volume of email that he gets, I can't imagine. On that day, he opened it. On that day, it landed. And he hit basically forward to me. And it said, the email said, Carl, I love these. Would you consider doing some with us? And I said, I knew enough. I mean, I was just a lonely financial planner in Nevada. You know, like I was like, sure. I mean, I didn't even know what I was saying yes to, but sure. And, and that led to that. And the book was very similar. The book, really, the first book happened because, I mean, I was writing for the Times about a year into that. Again, it was just playing in traffic, playing in traffic and saying yes. Like that's really all I know how to do. Like play in traffic, say yes, notice tailwind, create systems. That's like all I really know how to do now. That's great. How did that first book come to light? Yeah, so I had been introduced to a book agent who is still my book and amazing. I think the best book agent and a really great human. I have a very short attention span and I really don't like doing things that don't make sense to me, especially things that feel like jumping through hoops. So I'm a huge fan now of, I only do permissionless projects. If I need somebody else's permission for it, I'm not interested. I didn't know that early on, but that was the problem. So I was trying to write a proposal. I was trying to work with my book agent to write a proposal. I'm like, I can't. I like, I try. And I'm like, this is so lame. I hate it. So that's where we were at. We were kind of stuck. She was like, well, I can't really, <laughs> I can't really pitch the book to a publisher if you can't even write a proposal. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. That's what we were kind of stuck. And then um, one day on a Friday afternoon, I remember where I was. I was here in Park City, Utah, where I live. I was actually waiting to pick up my skis were getting tuned. I was waiting to pick up my skis. My phone rings and it's a New York number. And I was like, Friday afternoon, New York? Why? I don't want to answer that. But I answered it. And it was an editor at, at Portfolio, sort of the business imprint of Penguin. And her name was Courtney. And she said, hey, Carl, I've read your columns at the New York Times. I've printed them and I've organized them in chapters. I'm just calling to see if we talk you into writing a book for us. And I was like, well, yeah, funny you should ask. I have a book agent. And she asked me who it was. And I told her and she said, oh, she's a friend of the house is what they say. And I was like, great. Well, I'm not interested in writing a proposal. And she's like, well, what if we made you a preemptive offer? And I was like, look, I'm a kid from the hills in Utah. I don't know what a preemptive offer is. And I was like, just call my book agent. And three days, seven days, like within 10 days, we had a signed book deal. And that was how that happened. So again, there's not much repeatable from that story, except play in traffic and hope to get hit. And when you do say yes, but I know people who've been playing in traffic for years and they've never been hit. And I don't know why that versus my story. I have no answers for that. I know people who are 10 times more talented than I am, right? I've been playing in traffic. And for some reason, it just didn't match up with what was going on in the world at the time. And I don't know why Morgan Housel's book has sold a million copies, right? I mean, it's great writing, but there's lots of great writers. 
I don't know why James Clear's book sold over 10 million copies. There's a lot of good books on habits. James is brilliant, and I think his book deserves every bit of it. I'm not downplaying it. But there's a piece of this that we can't explain. And I think any effort to is kind of cute. So anyway, that's how the book happened. Cool, cool. And so you got a check for a book you could write, but you know, no idea yet what. How did that idea come to light? How did you, at the end, create the book? So this is, again, like a flaw that has now become a giant feature. We printed out everything I'd written, you know, the sketch and the essay together. And I'm actually not kidding. We hung them on the wall with tape across this giant wall. And then we moved them around until we felt like that was the right order. Then we took all of that, we put it in one document. Then we went through and we worked on it and we worked on it and we worked on it. We added stuff where it needed to be expanded and we cut stuff where it needed to be cut. I really believe, and when I say we, I just mean the whole editorial team. At the time, it was just me and one assistant person that helped me. Now I've got a whole team, a ridiculously good COO operations-wise and a really good CMO. But at the time, it was just me and an assistant and we literally hung them on the wall. And then we have a belief, and I had the belief back then, I just didn't know it, that that little Prince quote, that um, perfection is not achieved when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. So largely, we took away, took away, took away, curated, curated, curated. I wanted to have the subtitle of the book be better than the New York Times, right? Because we took stuff that went through their editorial process and we made it better. But of course, that's probably not a good idea. So that's how it happened. And that's how still how we write books today. I mean, the way I write books today, and please, anybody listening to this, if you find it valuable, steal it, is I record the podcast. So I have a list. I mean, this is crazy complicated. So on my iPhone, there's this thing on iPhones called notes. Because <laughs> people always ask me, like, how do you do this? I'm like, I use tools that leave me no place to hide. There's a place called notes. Under notes, I create a folder. One folder is called podcast ideas. And then there's another folder called podcast ideas underscore used. I walk through the world. I read something. I have a conversation like this. There will be four or five ideas out of this conversation that when we're done, I will just sit down and record with my thumbs, type up a couple notes. Then every day, I open up podcast ideas. I open up voice memos right? Or QuickTime voice file. I take out my $20 Rode lav mic that sounds better than, you know, whatever. It sounds 99. Unless you're an audio engineer, you don't know the difference. I open up podcast ideas. I talk about it. I process that idea out loud. I hit save, transfer to Dropbox, put a name on it. It gets posted in there. So I've been doing this every day. We just recorded episode 380. And in podcast ideas, there are podcast ideas right now. So 380 is, have been recorded. I'm 20 days ahead and there's 80 things in podcast ideas, 80 memos in podcast ideas. So then what happens is every once in a while, we go into the podcast itself. Every month, somebody, and if I didn't have somebody, I would do it myself, writes up a synopsis of all the episodes and all the paid subscribers get that email. Then at the end of the year, we've got 12 of those each with 36, you know, 30 ideas. And so now we can just go through the process of curating and say, okay, let's find 50 to 100 ideas. Let's put those in one document. Let's make them better. Let's clean them up. Let's refine them. Let's make them even better. And let's call that a book. So that's the process we use. 
right? And now we're backlogged. Like I could stop creating, the team has told me this, like stop creating content. We'd have, we'd have products we could create for five years. It's all just, I call it the content flywheel. Everything I'm doing is a byproduct. All I have to do is record two to 10 minutes, six times a week, everything else. By the way, everything in Twitter, we listen to the episode and we try to pull out two to three tweets out of every episode. It's just a giant content flywheel. Very inspiring. I think a lot of creators can learn from this episode from you. And I think that, yeah, it's just a matter of get started when you're just getting started. You're at your worst, but nobody's watching anyway. So just do it. And uh, yeah, use simple things and uh, just do it. Thank you, Carl. This is a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Well, Twitter, obviously, App Behavior App. And then since we talked about it a bunch, the podcast is behaviorgapradio.com. You can go there. It's 10 bucks a month to find out if you like it. And we'll send you a free letterpress print when you sign up anyway. So Behavior App Radio, probably the best place. Thanks, man. Thank you. Cheers. So fun. Thank you. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week.